Good afternoon and welcome to your American Heritage, baby. My name is Ed Bondarenka, and I, of course, I'm not. Not your normal fluffy insurrectionist. And producing this show is the Swiss Army Knife of Radio, Derek Stone. Derek hosts Stone Cold Sports Truth Sundays at 12.30 in the afternoon, right after my friend Sean Todd hosts The Intersection, which is at noon. And The Intersection is, of course, of course... Not okay, Garrett, thanks so much. Christian show. <laughs> okay, and that's my guest, Hadley. And we'll, he'll be on shortly. Hi, Hadley. Can you give me a second? Hey, thanks. okay. We, we finally <laughs> fixed it. We finally fixed it. Okay, okay that's great. I'm going to do a short intro here, okay? And then sure. we'll get to you. Thanks. So uh, I just wanted to say that uh, you should listen to The Intersection at noon. And uh, the whole Saturday lineup, Abolinistus Roundtable at 9, Trigger Talk at 11, Moment of Clarity with myself and Pastor Rick, and that's before this show at 1. And if you missed any, go to the podcast page at whamradio.com to catch up or share with friends. Your American Heritage is on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and you can and should subscribe, boost the signal, be a Paul Revere, get the word out. Because it's day 958 of the coup, the theft of the American government by enemies both foreign and domestic. It's also day 24 of Have No Shame Month. Famous quote from Abraham Lincoln, Gettysburg Address. We're engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. That statement is as true today as it was in 1864. Is it? Yep, there's a war going on for control of America and you. This country was founded on the notion of individual liberty and God-given natural rights, the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights, the recognition of our right to freely assemble, to freely speak, to own, and importantly, to bear arms. And we've been informed this week of great miscarriages of justice. The two-tiered justice system has never been more apparent. The founders intended for each citizen to be co-equal and all men are created equal and there should be none above the law. But here we are. Like the Babylon Bee recently posted, our sources have reported Hunter's attorneys met with prosecutors and simply said, our client's last name is Biden, at which point prosecutors agreed to forego any jail time for the charges. Now the left, the socialists, and the communists have long cried for the wealthy to pay their fair share, yet they're silent about Hunter. And his father, the resident of 1600 Pennsylvania, called for 87,000 armed IRS agents to go after you, yet they ignore his own son. It almost makes one want to give up on this nation, that we have failed. But given the choice of living in despair or hope, I choose hope. The founders were greatly interested in the Hebrew nation. As Bill Federer, Scott Powell, and others have pointed out to us, the Jews lived as free men with no king but God and no law but his law. And they had judges. They had, there's a whole book devoted to those. You should read it sometime. And they had times where they would screw up and the nation would suffer until a judge arrived that would lead them back in response to their prayer. This is one of the reasons that I have so many guests regarding the law. Attorneys and former judges like Professional Will Wagner and Dave Coleman, lawyers representing the Jan 6 victims and the like. And Sherry and I just went to a 10 year anniversary event for Salt and Light Global. It was an evening of food because we are of course Christians, worship and celebration of what God has done and prayer for what he will do. Many of our battles are won in a result of the judges that arise. We talked to James Rosen, James Rosen a couple weeks ago about Antonin Scalia, and today we will talk to Hadley Arks, a fellow warrior in the battle. But first, I'd like to remind you that this administration, its allies and corporations and the media are at war with us. They want us to submit to them and their quest for power over us. And what is to be our response? 
we resist, we protest, we boycott, we boycott, we go to court, we go back to court, we vote whether they cheat or not, and we pray. They have a justice department, we have a God. Psalm 144 says, blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And I'd like to ask you to please clasp your hands and your fingers, let's pray, let's go to war. Father, please protect our nation and our state from these evil tyrants. Please deliver us from these ungodly oppressors. We live in a land that has the appearance of being wicked, of promoting wickedness and perversion. Please help us cleanse this land and remove the stain upon it. Please motivate pastors to speak out and rail against the iniquity and sinful behavior of this government. Please lead and guide the American people in the days to come in resistance to these threats to our liberty. And please help us restore goodness and morality to the governance of our nation and our state, amen. Hadley Arcus is an American political scientist and a professor of jurisprudence and American institutions emeritus at Amherst College, where he's taught since 1966. There's a lot more he's done, I'm just gonna have him tell you about it. But I was inspired to have him on today in response to his latest book, Mere Natural Law. Welcome, Mr. Arcus, may I call oh, you Hadley? Oh, yes, it's Hadley, it's Hadley, good enough. Thanks so much, Thank thanks for having me on. I mean, I I come from the middle, from Chicago, so I, I your 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 listeners can understand me. They won't need yeah. they won't need any subtitles. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's a good place to be from is Chicago. Yeah, so it's, that's it's it's going it's going down, <laughs> spiraling down rapidly though. May not be yeah. there when I get back. Okay. I often ask gifts to give listeners right. a little biographical background and. It never occurred to me before today that the purpose might be not just to introduce the author or person, but actually give a basis for their expertise in the subject. So why don't you tell us where you're coming from? You have, you are a very young man, and yet you have a vast amount of experience behind you. So give a us a leader's man, digest. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you think so. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of people in their late, my, my first students turned 78 this year. So I think of them, I think of them as young people. Uh, and I came out of Chicago and went to the University of Illinois. My late wife and I were married in our senior year. And I went to graduate school, the greatest school of political science in the world, the University of Chicago, to study with um, Hans Morgenthau, Leo Strauss, and so on. And then I went out to Amherst for a job. I, I, stayed, I was there for 50 years. My sentence was commuted. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I had an offer to do a, a new project on natural law, which consisted with, with my writings over the years. But listen, let me go back to what you said about the Civil War. Um, my friend Sam Alito, I count him as a friend. He has been assailed. Uh, the, the other side is simply have a bottomless treasury in trying to accuse the conservative judges of everything. That's telling Sam. This this is in a, this is not normal politics. This is a state of civil war to be yes. conducted with uh, with defamation, with writings to discredit the other side, to silence the other side. Uh, I think I think you're right. It just the, the, we just haven't had the shooting. By the way, the the the, uh, the walls behind me in my study <laughs> are are not as appealing as the walls behind you. <laughs> any any that, kid any kid or guy would rather be in that room. <laughs> the, right above my head 
yeah. is a, a, a Ma Deuce 50 caliber Browning machine gun. And uh, I have a friend, uh, Pastor uh, uh, Will Wagner, who said he got to shoot one recently. And I never, I the fat, uh, the most lethal gun I shot in the military was a M16 on full auto. But that sure. cost $5 a round to shoot. You know, I mean, I can't afford that. <laughs> yeah. Guess, guess, guess pricey. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So but anyway, uh, yes. So you wrote this book, and right. tell me about. Let, I read the book. I'm I'm thrilled with the book. It's a great book. It's very understandable. Explains the basis of where where the founders were coming from and why we have the law we have. And there's obviously two different philosophies of how we derive law. And you describe uh, describe the the different approaches to law. In fact, in the last hour in the previous show I was doing with Pastor Rick, Moment of Clarity, we were talking about autonomy, heteronomy, and uh, not deuteronomy, uh, theonomy. And, <laughs> well, deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. And, you know, where, where the law comes from. And he was pointing out that heteronomy is where the government gives you the law. And uh, autonomy is where you come up with the law. And then, of course, theonomy is God gives you the law. Now, where do you fit into those three strata? Or is there a middle position for you called natural law? Well, I think it's the, look, uh, Leo the 13th once explained that animals, cows and, and cows and horses don't have property rights. Cows and horses can't impart a moral purpose to inanimate matter. The only creatures who can impart a purpose to inanimate matter are those creatures, the creatures of reason. Uh, Aristotle said that the most, what defines human beings, our human nature most distinctively, is that capacity to give and understand reasons over matters of right and wrong. Now, uh, where did that all come from? Who's the creator who, who gifted us with this reason? The same one who taught us with rights. Now, I remember, uh, I, I've done a lot of writing on James Wilson, one of our founders, who read a lot in Jean-Jacques Berlamaqui, the Swiss writer on natural law, and he said, People thought there, the different sources of law. Some one says it, it emanates from a lawgiver, right? And we know who that would be. On the other hand, it, it emanates from the laws of reason. What we were created with this nature, with the capacity for reason, and we were now given the possibility of understanding all those implications, those principles, those laws of reason that flow from our reason. And Berlambaki took the line, yes, but our confidence that the laws proceeded from a lawgiver are reinforced when we're, we have the sense that those laws emanating from the lawgiver are reasonable, eminently reasonable in accord with reason. The purpose of, of this, this new book, Ed, I, I drew on C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Natural Law, because he would, he would be drawn to the conversation of children, right? just ordinary people, children would argue about matters of right and wrong. And they, they'd seek out principles, rules, but also the conversation was affected by the sense that of course, an argument makes no sense unless we assume that there's standards of judgment to tell the difference between good or bad reasons. So my point was to take this back to those precepts of common sense that ordinary people have to understand before they start trafficking in theories. Uh, this was, the, the founders wrote, read, uh, uh, James Wilson, our premier Meisman founders, James, John Adams, read Thomas Reed, the great Scott philosopher, in his teachings on common sense, the things that the ordinary person, 
not only knows, just has to know I'm getting on with the business of life before I could deal with, with theories. And so we'd say before the average man would banter with the philosopher David Hume about the meaning of causation, the average man knew his own active powers to cause his own acts to happen. Now what I wanted to try to show people is the ground of our natural law, the things that are most understandable to ordinary people can be found in those precepts of common sense that the American founders took as the ground of their own judgments and uh, to make our way back to them. And it's curious how much resistance there is among people who are locked in to some other theories about originalism and so on and say, well, what we're trying to do is restore the moral ground of the American regime. I was at a meeting years ago when uh, Professor Amy Comey Barrett was saying, well, you're, you're, you like to, you're, you favor the positive law, the law that's simply enacted, put in force. And a student asked her, well, what's the, what's the difference between the positive law of America and the positive law of Stalin's Russia? You have to go back to the question of who had the authority to enact those laws in the first place. In order to do that, you've got to go back to first principles. Go on. Define that, define that term positive law for the audience, okay? No, I, just, I, I just try to do it in passing. Positive law, the law that is simply posited or enacted. Now, the tradition of natural law assumed there has to be a transition. You know, we see signs saying 65 MPH, 35 MPH. Those are just rules, enacted rules positive law. But people like Immanuel Kant would tell us behind those regulations is a deeper principle, a natural law that tells you why you'd be justified in restraining the freedom of people to drive at speeds that put innocent life at hazard. And the task is, as ever, to make a connection between the to translate the natural law into terms that apply to the circumstance and the terrain before us, maybe 65 on an open road, 35 on the winding road. So that sense was, there's a, there are these underlying laws that tell you why you'd be justified in having these laws. That's what we mean by the natural law. Okay, uh, so reason comes into place there and-, and it's, it's decisive, right. Okay, you know, uh, one thing I read, uh, reference to in your book was about the uh, the plowman and the professor. Right. And uh, I right. looked up the quote and uh, it says here, Jefferson's comment to his nephew, Peter Carr, state right. a moral case to a plowman and a professor, of course, a farmer and a professor. The former will decide it as well and often better than the latter because he has not been led astray by artificial rules. And doesn't that get to the crux of your book? You know, um, basically there's, there's, it seems there's been a, a change in the Supreme Court from resting on natural law to resting on precedent. Is that right? Well, no, it's it's the whole transition that came in the aftermath of Lincoln. People, the, the, the law schools drifted away from the understanding of natural law, of moral truths that were out there. Uh, Justice Holmes in a famous line said he hoped that every word of moral significance could be purged from the law altogether. Give us a pure law, freed of those vexing moral, because he really doubted there were moral truths. And he said at one point, the, the, what is a universal moral truth is simply the vote of that country that can lick all others. 
there are no moral truths. It's simply a matter of the rule of the strong. Okay, so um, what we've seen, what you've seen, is a, a a drift into theories of law. I think when 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 Jefferson said that, he said. The plowman will not be likely distracted by artificial rules. Call them theories. You want to take the most dramatic example, Ed, uh, that I think you, you certainly would appreciate. Matter of, of transgenderism. All right? The court had this case. And you have the matter of uh, Anthony Anthony uh, Stevens earnestly professing that he had become a woman. And the judgment of the case is, well, if he, that's he, but he earnestly professes that. The rest of us are going to have to respect it or put ourselves and our employers in peril. Now, how did they get to that point? Well, they said, well, there's, there were these statutes that barred discrimination on the base of sex. And then the judges try to use all kinds of theories to find out, well, what could those statutes have meant? Uh, should we use the dictionaries to find out and so on? And so they're using all their theories of textual construction interpretations figure out. But the one thing they never thought legitimate to do is look at the truth of the matter. I mean, anybody, any ordinary person who saw Anthony Stevens go into a locker room would know at once whether he was a man or a woman. All right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, um, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith with, with Rasika Yisko said, there's not always been an Italy or a Hungary. But as long as there are human beings, there must be males and females. That's how we are constituted. So the point is, the I see you raising your hand at me. Am I, am I going over the board, overboard or something? No, 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 no. I want to interrupt real quickly because sure. I want to focus. You mentioned Anthony Stevens, and he was at the crux of the Harris Funeral Home case, right? Right. I have. I have been to the Harris Funeral Home, unfortunately, oh, really? oh, yeah, a number Michigan. of times. It's yeah. it's just a few miles from here. And uh, ah. that's, and I'm not sure many people understand the basis of the case you're talking about. I remember reading about it at the time that this guy was hired by the funeral uh, director to to be uh, on staff, and then the next day he comes to work, you know, with a five o'clock shadow and a beer, you know, and and a dress, and mm -hmm. he's greeting bereaved people, and they're going like, is, yes. "Is the circus in town? Am I in the wrong place? You work," and it was demeaning to the business. They felt like. Wow, who's going to want to use our services? And it became a supreme. It became a supreme court. Now, would you please explain it to us? Because you're the professor, I'm just the plowman. Well, I, just, I think I just did. <laughs> it, 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 it was taken as a discrimination under the law. Discrimination on the basis of what? The Civil Rights Act, barring discrimination based on sex. Well, that's not what they thought we're dealing with. Sexual yeah. orientation. That's not what they thought the statutes were dealing with. So, in order to deal with, you have to say, well, what do the statutes really mean? And what do people say at the time? Well, it, quite apart from what they say at the time, Justice Scalia said, people say many things. You have to just take the words in, in the text and see what they mean. Well, you may have to go back to dictionaries to see, and you get no guidance there. And so people, the liberals going to say, look, we have a more amplified view these days of what racial discrimination means. When the 14th Amendment was passed, no one thought that uh, racial discrimination meant you couldn't have these laws that barred interracial marriage. We have a more amplified view of that now. And the argument would be we have a more amplified view of what sexual discrimination. You say you're discriminating against a guy who has, has a, an entirely different view now of his sex. But of course, if you point out, just 
utterly just disorienting and, and surprising and unsettling for people who walked into the home. But my point to you here then again is this. The conservative judges dealing with the case thought they had, well, what does a text mean? We're not sure, we don't think it could have meant that. Maybe there are different theories now that tell us why it could mean that, and we'll buy onto those theories, but it never seemed to come into sight for the conservative judges, that they were not confined to those theories. Out of those theories, they could actually look beyond the theories to the inescapable truth that bears on the matter of what is sex and why Anthony Stevens was no more free to change his sex and to change his race or to change his height. But that yeah. was not okay. But that was not part of the reflex because once again, you're asking what's happened to the law. Uh, remember, Orwell used to say the line that that is so that's so 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 bizarre, so wacky that only an intellectual could have thought of it. No ordinary no ordinary person could have been that dumb. And it's a matter again that common sense available to ordinary people, that I think, did form the ground of what we call the natural law. Yes, you know, you uh, you mentioned truth and truth underlying the, uh, you know, what what we do in the law, and yet, yeah, most famously, uh, Pilate turned to Jesus, who was truth, standing right truth? in front of him. What is truth? Right? What is truth? Yeah. Here's a, a governor of of all these people that has no idea what truth is. How do you how do you make judgment if you don't know what truth is? And yet we have truth in front of us. Uh, actually, Paul in the book of Romans appeals to this innate yeah. sense of you look around, you know what's going on. You know nature tells you what's happening, and how can you how can you go in this other direction when when you have this? But what was the line? And the Gentiles who have not the law. Do by nature the things of the law, there is a law unto themselves. Right? That was, that was Paul Romans, right? Yeah. Well we, done, sir. We grasp it. Sure. Sure. I used to say, I used to say that if Moses came down from Sinai with the two tablets and he said to people gather around, the Lord our God said, Don't worry overly much about lying down with somebody else's wife. I think the Hebrews gather around would scratch their heads and say, are you sure you got that one right? Yeah, the ten suggestions, not the ten commandments. Uh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are municipal ordinances bearing on the immediate vicinity of Mount Sinai, not universal commands. Right, right. Yeah, we got about a minute left before break, and of course we're going to have you over after the break because I have so many more questions. I I couldn't even put all my questions in an order that that made sense of me to ask you because well, I'm, I'm so overwhelmed. Well. You're doing well, well so far, Ed. Getting at the well, mostly the I'm letting you talk, and that's the smart thing for me to do. <laughs> but I do have I do have questions uh, I'd like you to, to uh, answer, and uh, I will take calls at 734-822-1600 if we can keep them to short, brief questions and, uh, and not long soliloquies. So we got 30 seconds left. I'll say come on back after the break, folks, and speak with my friend, uh, our guest, Hadley Arcus author of Mere Natural Law. Do you have a copy of the book to show them? We were made to be courageous. 
We were made to lead the way We could be the generation That finally breaks the chains We were made to be courageous We were made to be courageous We were warriors on the front lines Standing unafraid Well, thanks for returning to your American Heritage, baby. I'm your host, Ed Bondarenka, and my guest today is Hadley Arcus, who's the author of many books, but uh, most recently, the one we're discussing is Mere Natural Law. And I, I like the title. Uh, as he referred to it, it kind of refers to uh, the uh, C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity. He's showing go. a picture of it that you Here can't you see because we're doing radio. But uh, don't, don't, don't leave home without a copy. Right. Yeah, don't leave home. With, hey, really, it's a good read. It's not a it is a scholarly tome, but it's very, very readable and it helps you understand many, many concepts. Oh, thanks, and thanks. then if you use this uh, this interview as a uh, uh, footnotes, then you won't have any problem with it. And so actually, I'm going to take a call right now because we invited calls and Paul's on the phone with a question about judges calling balls and strikes. I don't think we're talking baseball here and umpires. But I think it's an allegory. I'm not much good at those. Hey, Paul. Hi, Ed. Thanks for hi, Ed. Thanks for taking my call, uh, Mr. Arcus. I've read some of your stuff in First Things. I, I like your your work. Um, thanks for being here today. Um, uh, yeah. So I think it was Justice John, Chief Justice John Brennan said, you know, that's the job of the court is to call balls and strikes, and it's you Robert, get the idea Robert, that yeah. you're supposed to approach it from just a pure neutrality standpoint. And that we have this set of rules here and then we're gonna just look at the rules and that's it. And um, I, I take it your view is a little different from that. Good question. Thank you, sir. Very good question. Hadley. Well, of course, look, we just had a, we just had a case on um, whether, whether Texas and Oklahoma, I think could, could Challenge the, uh, the the Biden administration policies on, on the deportation, and the court simply relied on the rule that well, we're not clear you have standing to sue. That you distinctively have some interest here, and Justice Alito said, "Of course, I do have an interest. They're being yeah, their, their border. border is being overrun. So, okay, you can have these rules on st standing. The question is, are they aptly applied here? You can't get around the matter of, of judgment, and the matter, and of course." Part, you know what the line of rich people who are originalists in our own day is that as soon as a judge leaves the text of the Constitution, he's simply looking inside himself, as though there were moral, no moral truths outside the text. That's not the way the American founders are. The American founders began with moral truths outside the text, the truths that enjoined them to create a government by the consent of the government with all kinds of legal restraints. Uh, they didn't think that once you left the text, you know, there's this, um, uh, people seem to think that presumed innocent until proven guilty is part of is part of our constitutional order. It is, but it's not in the text of the Constitution, right? Uh, it, it simply is, I did a book called Beyond the Constitution, showing how judges, even on our own time, feel the need, find the need to go beyond the text to figure out what was the understanding behind the text. So Frankfurt would suggest Frankfurt would say, let's see, Fifth Amendment says we may not be compelled to testify against ourselves. So where's the accent? Is it ourselves? Can we be, if we give somebody immunity, 
can we force him to testify about his friends in the Communist Party? Was the accident uncompelled? So on. Then, mother, as my point is, it's just persistently necessary. And our best judges have recognized it's persistently necessary to go. And what are we just talking about now, Ed? We're talking about judges who think that they were constrained by what they called theories of textual interpretation. By the way, theories of textual interpretation, where are they? They're not in the text, are they? <laughs> where did you get these theories of text? Who, who put them there? I mean, are you saying that there are canons? But would you tell us the difference between rightful and wrongful construct? Rightful and wrongful rules that tell you rightful and wrongful ways of applying the Constitution to the case? Really? And it's not in the text? Where did, where did you get? Who put them there? Okay, so um, there, there are so many things like this. And most dramatically, I think, in that Harris case that you mentioned, where the judges are sort of tied up in theories of textual construction and they can't see that, that the subset matter is... And the same thing with, with abortion. You, they feel that they're constrained. Go ahead, Ed, want to interrupt? Oh, no, 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 I'm glad you went to Dobbs. And once again, I want to thank Paul for setting us down this, this course. Beautiful question, because it set us right where one of the, uh, the crux uh, key points of your book is about originalism. And we, we praise originalism, but is it really originalism if it, if it just, go ahead, you say it better than I do. But obviously in Dobbs, why didn't they go to personhood? Why did they just stick with the mechanics instead of because, really? Because that's what that's what conservative jurisprudence has been about. You know, remember the old line thing that psychologists, they have a picture. One time, some people see a woman with a hat. Other people look at it and see a vase. When you see the woman in the hat, you no longer see the vase. And mm -hmm. something like something like this took place 50 years ago with Roe versus Wade. Those lawyers from Texas brought in an exquisite brief, drawing on the most updated findings of embryology, Ed, to point out that offspring in the womb has never been anything that other than human from its very first moments. It receives its nourishment from its mother, but it's never been merely a part of the mother. They've set things up for the Supreme Court to say, ah, those laws in Texas, casting the protection of law among these small human beings, as laws have long cast those protection in this country, are, are plausibly and eminently justified. We sustain those things. Okay, but that's not the line that conservatives took. That's not the line, that's not the, what they said was wrong with Roe versus Wade, that we pass up the chance to simply sustain an eminently plausible and compelling law. No, they said the real problem was, Abortion is not in the text of the Constitution. It's raw judicial power where you proclaim rights that cannot possibly be emanating from the, from the uh, Constitution. Well, marriage wasn't in the Constitution when the court struck down the laws that barred interracial marriage. Now, it goes on this way, let's say. For all these years, 50 years, if he asked conservative, what's the problem with it? That you did, you did not sustain these plausible laws that gave you a compelling reason to show why the offspring of the womb is human. And it gave us some judges who think, no, we've done all conservative Jews can do. We simply tell you the right to abortion is not in the Constitution. And we can somehow can't allow ourselves to see the center of the problem. So you could have Justice Brett and Justice Kavanaugh saying some 
people, could you believe this? Some human, some pro-life activists actually believe that a fetus is human. Believe it. Something that stands has been a critical part of the textbooks of embryology and obstetric biology for how long now? And he simply reduces it to a matter of belief because he thinks he's absorbed the sense. There's a conservative judge. He should not be going beyond the procedures that will confine judges to certain to certain questions and not others. So it's it's and also, by the way, the dissenters in the deliberate dissenters in Dobbs really nailed it. They said the majority expresses no opinion or judgment about the nature of that child in the that being in the womb and right. The protection of that unborn of that fetus plays no part in majority's analysis. That's right. For the conservative judges, it was simply a matter of a theory that the judges had long ago usurped the right, the authority to enter, to pronounce on this question, and now they're simply overturning that. And they think their work is done. But it's not done because, as you know, a, a road, as I said in the book, Roe did not merely create the right to abortion, it changed the culture. It changed abortion from being something abhorred, discouraged, forbidden, into something approved, celebrated, promoted. And that decision in Dobbs did not even take the first steps in, 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 in leading us to make the moral argument that we can remold, can reshape the public understanding of this question. I recently heard a podcast and darn I can't I thought I made myself a note of who was talking about this and it it just came to mind while we were speaking and and the one guy made a comment I think it was primarily about second amendment issues but he was saying that oh it might have been on Dick Kupke's show I think that's what it was on Trigger Talk but he was saying that the the Supreme Court follows public opinion by about 10 years he says rarely is it original but that it seems to follow uh makes no great decision unless the, the mood of the population has swung that way and they feel like, oh, we're safe to do this now. Do you do you see that as a trend? No, I think that's patently wrong. I mean, okay. abortion, before Roe versus Wade, abortion was losing persistently in referendum in the state, even in Massachusetts, they would not change the laws barring abortions. This was something brought on from above from um, judges who thought they had a new ethic to teach. Harry Blackman, who worked at that hospital in, uh, in, in Minneapolis, um, they brought this forth. And of course, it, has, it brought along with it the teaching force of the law. When the Supreme Court pronounces a judgment, they're not simply settling the case. People think the court has pronounced a judgment on the rightness and wrongness of things. It took hold that there is now a deep right. I mean, they changed, they didn't change the culture. So you now have, I mean, years ago, 1989, there was a first move to return abortion back to the political arena in the states, and suddenly it set off a storm. There, people in New Jersey were claiming, I'm being, we're being dispossessed. Now, what we've come to consider a deep right, utterly anchored in our personal freedom, even more important than the freedom of religion and speech. Where did they get this from? It was the, it, they were being tutored to this by it was, it's the old notion. The law teaches when you impose when you impose when you pass a law and you tell people we're going to bar discrimination based on race, even in private businesses. We're telling you we're removing that judgment from your personal discretion and treating it now as a matter of 
public obligation. We're teaching you that it has some moral force. The law teaches. And what the court did in Roe was teach. And they took one of the first steps in reshaping the culture. I mean, to talk about the, the culture world without talking about the court is rather as the old joke used to run. It's like playing Hamlet without the first grave digger. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Alas, who's, poor who's, York. <laughs> yeah, who's, who, who brought all this about? Who brought all this about? I mean, I yeah. was, my wife, like I said, listen, my wife, wife and I, when we came to Washington in 1965, looking for an apartment, the court had just brought forth this decision on Griswold on, on striking down the laws that barred the sale of contraceptives. Years later, 2014, I went to the court when they were trying to deal with the case of Mr. Green of Hobby Lobby, who did not want to uh, support abortifacients and contraceptives in his medical medical provision he gave made for his employees. And the place, the whole landscape was filled with women saying, I got, not only do I have this right to abortion, it is so important that somebody else has to pay for it. it mm -hmm. And I said, where do we get this from? They, simply, they took that step years ago to say, I have a right to abortion, to contraception. And sure enough, it took hold in the public mind as a deep, as a deep right. Something you rightful know, about it. Exactly. And that's a point that I wanted to ask you about. And uh, I, I'm not sure. But there's two things I've got going on in my mind. One is the way the Supreme Court takes rulings like uh, you don't have standing or it's almost like the being on jeopardy. Please frame your response in the form of a question. You know, like we're not going to rule on the underlying truth here. We all know what the underlying truth is. However, if you don't meet the, meet the technicality, we can rebuff oh. you. Okay, but, but there's, there is something very useful about that about, and, and grounded in the principles of, uh, of this republic. That is, the point is, if judges could simply grab cases when they want them without any real injury, uh, engaged, well, the, the judges will simply turn themselves into a, 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 a third house of the legislature. They could just grab any case they want. The point is, while the judges are laying off their hands, I wish they laid their hands off the issue of abortion. While the judges are, are holding back their hands, they're leaving the decisions to be made by people in elective office who have a responsibility to the, to the people who elected them. And when the judges get the case, they see only two sides, two litigants. Whereas in a legislature, an issue comes up and you see the full range of opinions and the interests that are engaged in this question. And it just, it's a different kind of discipline to try it's to- It's representative out. government, that's yeah, what it it's is. A, it's a different discipline that to try to, in that setting, to try to make the case, a case that make, make the case for this bill in a way that offers a justification to your other colleagues and all these people with their other interests so they can be satisfied and sign on that this is something plausible and reasonable and just. That's a, that's a useful discipline. And of course, the court doesn't have that when it's dealing with just two litigants. And of course, it puts the it it puts the key decisions. You know, Scalia used to say, you know, 320 million Americans should not be ruled by five justices on the Supreme Court. As a and that's, that's that is part of the moral the, the moral ground that my friends in originalism are defending. They put their all accent on the court not having 
ineptly taking the case. And it, it was simply a, a matter of the, the court moving into this long, wrong lane outside its jurisdiction. That that was that may that may be the case too. But but look the uh, look uh, as Jerry Bradley the other day pointed out, this federal government had ample reason to be. De- it's not as though the subject of abortion is outside the concerns of the federal government. The Congress had to deal with abortion, military outposts abroad, diplomatic outposts, the territories, the District of Columbia. Uh, they upheld, four years before Roe, they upheld the laws in the District of Columbia that barred uh, abortions. But, but touching on one point you made earlier, James Wilson, who I often mention, one of our friends, raised the question, if we have natural rights, when do they begin? And his answer is, as soon as we, we know we're here. That's why he said, the common law casts its protection over the child in the womb as soon as we know it is there. If you have a human being, ah, you know, you're a bearer, you are now a bearer of rights and you can be protected by the law. So we had the civil rights law in the 60s and we brought up civil rights in in our conversation. And so we have natural law and we have civil law and we have natural rights and we have civil rights. And, And I've long felt that we shouldn't have People think civil rights are natural rights. And I'm of the opinion that civil rights are rights right. that the government creates. That's right. And unfortunately, right. the Civil Rights Act created rights that really don't exist, so to speak. They don't, like the Bill of Rights, they don't recognize our rights. They they impose um, restraint on people. For instance, I, I used to be firmly in in favor of civil rights law. I lived in the South. I went to a barber shop and the barber would complain about how the people he has to take in his shop. He doesn't understand their scalp conditions, all that stuff. But, the you know, that's specious. But the fact that this carries over to the cake baker who says, hey, I don't want to support your gay wedding. And because of this law that was passed that really it infringes on the natural rights of the case baker now a cake baker now obviously i'm i'm just a plowman here but should there have been a 1964 civil rights act was that an overreach on the legislature that's that's really do you have any opinion on whether that's twisted our culture well, without you being well, called a racist oh, oh well i think the question in any any law you're imposing laws on people you press to explain what makes it justified to make that law binding, even on people who object to it. That's important discipline to say, you've got to try to find, even though it's you're, 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 just, you're passing the statute, it's positive law, try to find some ground that explain why that law is valid, rightful, even for people who don't understand it. I think there was a principle like that. But the Civil Rights Act of 64 now, it, it's, it, it, it gave rise to all kinds of disasters with racial preferences. It enlarged the powers of the federal government over our lives. There's, there's no decision on tenure in a private college that may not go into a federal court. Um, and there's a serious question at the time as, as how Congress had the authority to do that. It's quite clear that a state could pass a law that bars uh, discrimination in, the, uh, in, in, in private business. It wasn't clear how the court could reach that matter. They used the Commerce Clause. Whereas 
as the late Joe Sorkin used to say, think of what Stalin could have done if he only had the, the, the Commerce Clause. Uh, the Commerce Clause can reach anything. A, case, a moral case could be made for it. But as with anything else, you could say, well, I think it was rightful. And it was too bad that so many bad things have sprung from it. Certain corruptions of that law in giving us, in fact, a system of racial entitlements. Uh, if, if, if it's, I don't know why it comes as a surprise to people. If you prefer give a preference to people of one race, you're withdrawing benefits from people of another race. Most people, I think, are aware of that point. Most people, given that you, most people ask the average man, you think, no, it's simply wrong in principle. We shouldn't be doing it. But a whole class of, of lobbyists and, uh, and people in politics have risen up with a strong interest in preserving that scheme of racial preferences. But yeah, right, it, it's, you could say it, it was a, a law that was grounded in a rightful principle that was never explained. Because if the court had ever explained what was truly, deeply wrongful about racial discrimination, then you wouldn't have people now on the liberal side saying, even if the court strikes down racial preferences in these two cases, on North Carolina and Harvard, even if the court strikes them down, we're going to figure out some way of keeping them going. Something they would never have said if, when the court struck down segregation saying, ah, if they do, we'll find some other way of keeping it going. A good sign that the court never really explained the deep wrongness of that matter in principle. Okay, that's good. I was thinking in terms of you were talking about the woman who thought she had a right to an abortive patient is because, you know, all of a sudden, the, if the state's dealing out right, or the government, uh, not the state states, but the federal government's dealing out rights, you know, and say, you now have a right, you have a right, you have a right, then all of a sudden, maybe they have to be forced to support that right financially, as opposed to relying on natural rights, where, hey, if the right comes from God, then you got to apply to God that supports you, right? It's well, a little bit of a... Yeah, but the point is they don't think that's merely a matter of, of positive law. They think that right that the court discovered was a deep natural right. But, you know, I, I did a book called Natural Rights, the Right to Choose. And I one point I mentioned a woman holding her baby after a, a killing at a, an abortion clinic in Brookline. She said, I'm here to protect for my baby the same reproductive rights enjoy, I've enjoyed, including the right to have killed that baby. He said, really? If that mm. baby in the womb had those rights, when did she acquire them? If she had them as soon as Wilson <laughs> said, which had to exist, then the mother couldn't have been justified in sweeping away her rights by sweeping her away. No, the argument has to be that baby acquires those reproductive rights as her mother confers them upon her by saying, there's nothing about you inconsistent with my interest. I now confer those rights. In other words, it's a right conferred by the powerful, which could be withdrawn as soon as it no longer suits the interests of the powerful. Okay, we have 60 seconds. Folks, you've been listening to Your American Heritage. And my guest has been Hadley Arcus, the author of Mere Natural Law. Buy the book, read the book. And Hadley, you got 20 seconds to promote. Go ahead. Oh, is there any one principle here? Yeah, never buy retail. Um, <laughs> no, All I, right. No, okay, no, the point is, just as they said, Socrates sought to bring net, uh, philosophy down out of the clouds to bring it to bear on the things we're concerned of, the matters of right and wrong. We're trying to bring natural law 
down under the clouds. And he put, no, it's not a theory hanging up in the clouds. It Great, sir. the stands of your judgment every day. All right, folks, come back next week. Thanks, Hadley. We hope to have you back. Okay, thanks for, thanks for inviting me, Ed.